Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you remember Dr. Seuss's classic book, On Beyond Zebra, then you know that contrary to popular belief, the alphabet doesn't end with the letter Z, Z to our English listeners, but stretches on for at least 20 more seldom used letters. Likewise, contrary to popular belief, the Gettysburg campaign didn't end after Pickett's charge on July 3, 1863, or even after Lee's Army of Northern Virginia were treated back across the Potomac. It stretched on at least two and a half more weeks, as we'll learn tonight from Jeffrey William Hunt, author of Meade and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign, from Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14 to 31, 1863, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from our usual location, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. It's a rainy night here on campus, but I'm not speaking for the campus, not speaking for anyone else, just myself, as always, uh, here on the second Wednesday of uh, November 2018, and my guest likewise will also speak only for himself tonight, that's how we always do it. Well, welcome to the show, you are uh, among uh, 
good company. There are many listeners, it turns out, to Civil War Talk Radio. I think last time uh, I was on, I pointed out we had over 50,000 hits in October, but the number crept up uh, with additional people listening to October's shows. There are now over 60,000 for October 2018, the most ever. I was able to be one of those listeners. I mentioned this uh, last week. I was able to listen myself when we did a pre-recorded show back in October, and I commented last week on the program that precedes this one, if you're listening live, and only a dozen of you across the world are listening live, uh, the other 59,000 or so download it and listen at your leisure. But I commented on how the show that precedes this one on the live broadcast on Voice America was uh, had to do with people's sex lives. It was somewhat more graphic than I tend to be with, with really anybody, anytime, anywhere. Uh, and I'm happy to report that uh, World Talk Radio uh, has stepped up and is uh, moving that show to another time. So if you are a young person listening in early and tuned in to see if you could hear The Sexy Lifestyle, uh, you missed it. Uh, It's on some other time of the week. You can go to the Voice America website, find out when it's on. But we will have something a little more family-friendly preceding this show going forward. So thank you to the network. Appreciate that. Well, here on campus, uh, it's getting towards... uh, the, the busy time of the year, we're heading toward the Thanksgiving break. There will be no live show next week, November 21, because of Thanksgiving. If you're in History 3225 and listening in, uh, midterms will be returned tomorrow. And uh, students did a good job on this in the Civil War class. I, I was pleased with the outcome of the, the exams, and, and we'll talk about it in class tomorrow. Less pleased with the outcome on the football field last week for East Carolina University. ECU lost again. The only good thing about the uh, swirling downhill season that is ECU football is it makes uh, the victory over UNC Chapel Hill back in September look worse and worse for the Tar Heels every time ECU loses. But I gather sources tell me basketball is starting, uh, maybe already has, so the people in Chapel Hill are doubtless moving on. And meanwhile, up in Ann Arbor, where my Michigan Wolverines are getting ready for the last two games of the season, we all wait with bated breath for the match against Indiana. Please get the starters out after 10 minutes. Don't let anyone get hurt before the big game, the one game season, the the, the game that used to be the only one that mattered back in the big two little eight days, uh, Michigan against Ohio State. Uh, in those days, there were only 10 teams in the Big Ten, and only two of them mattered uh, the way God attended it. Uh, well, looking forward uh, after the Ohio State game, there is coming up next May 2019 this Hallowed Ground tour of uh, Civil War sites. Check out stephenambrosetours.com and learn about that. I'm going to be guiding the tour of May 18 through 26. Would be delighted to have you along and uh, see these places we're going to talk about, including tonight, Gettysburg. And if you miss that, there's also the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. And if you miss any of those, uh, there's always this show with new things coming up. No show next week, no live show. We'll have a rerun for you. But on the 28th of November, 
Deirdre Cooper Owens, author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, will talk about an aspect of uh, slavery before the war not usually discussed. On on December 5th, Christopher Teeters will be talking with us about union officers in the Western theater. His book is called Practical Liberators. And then wrapping up the fall season, Peter Carmichael from Gettysburg College has a brand new book, The War for the Common Soldier. Uh, Looks really interesting and uh, excited to talk to him about that. And you'll hear it here you're hearing it here first, first tease of the 2019 spring season. And after we take a winter break uh, through the month of December, we'll come back on January 9th. And the first guest will be Will Green. It's A. Wilson Green. And his new book, A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. So lots going on. Always check out impedimentsofwar.org and see what's happening, go to the Impediments of War Facebook page. Mark Gaffney keeps them all up to date. Send me your suggestions and ideas. Send donations. They are very welcome, gratefully received. I enjoy the conversation uh, by email with you. I owe some people replies, and I apologize to you if you haven't heard back from me in the last couple weeks, uh, but it will happen. Tonight, we are talking with Jeffrey William Hunt, who is the author of Meade and Lee after Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign, from Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14 to 31, 1863, and let's find out what happened in this forgotten campaign. Mr. Hunt, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to uh, be on it. And uh, looking on the front, it says Jeffrey William Hunt. Uh, can do you go by Jeffrey? Jeff, is that? Uh, yeah, you what, can what? just call me Jeff. <laughs> and and please call me Jerry. That will save a lot of time as we go forward. I'm admiring the cover of the book. Before we even get into talking about it or asking you about anything else, uh, really interesting painting, uh, Andrew Wyeth painting, I believe. Uh, how did you Wyeth. get this? I'm sorry, uh, N.C. Wyeth. Yeah, t- tell me about the. Uh, the cover. Well, he's one of the great illustrators in American history, and he worked primarily in the first part of the 20th century. And I remember uh, as a young man, uh, you know, encountering his work in various books and and that sort of thing, and always loved his work. Uh, And so when I had to come up with images for a cover, uh, I, one of the primary difficulties was is that, that nobody had ever painted anything uh, about this particular period of history. Uh, I mean, there, there are plenty of black and white drawings done by people like Forbes and Wode, uh, but uh, nothing that would really make for a good book cover. Uh, and so I thought, why not see if I can uh, get a hold of uh, some of Weiss' work uh, and so uh, I started the Google search online and found out that uh, the Brandywine Museum uh, in Pennsylvania uh, holds a lot of his workers headed on exhibition. And so they helped me reach out uh, to the, uh, the private owners of this particular work, which is entitled mm-hmm. War, uh, and secure permission to use it as a book cover. And the other two books in this trilogy will also use N.C. White paintings as their illustrations. Well, that that is really impressive. It, it's a 
the first thing I thought of was was uh, Treasure Island. I, I remember seeing uh, uh, illustrations uh, and Wyeth yeah. illustrations for that classic book. Uh, in terms of the style and and this picture of a Union cavalry charge is very dramatic, and really really pops out. And it's not a familiarly seen image. That's the other thing is there's only so many images that we see recycled again and again, and this one isn't one of them. Well, let me backtrack and ask uh, about you, how, how you got into the Civil War world, and uh, uh, what, what's the, the basis of your interest? Uh, well, my mother will tell you that uh, the first word, apparently, that I ever spoke was combat, <laughs> from the old <laughs> 1960s uh, TV show, and I, I, I don't know that that's quite literally true, but uh, I, I had always had a, a fascination with military history. It was a lifelong thing. I was born in uh, 1962, so right during the centennial uh, of the war between the states. Don't know if that wove something into my DNA or not. My my father was in the U.S. Army uh, when I was born, uh, and uh, when I was in fourth grade, we lived in Indiana. Uh, at the time, and uh, in our Indiana history class, there was a chapter on the Civil War uh, and focused a lot on uh, John Hunt Morgan's cavalry, you know, slicing through the southeastern corner of the state. There was a really cool painting uh, of a Civil War battle there, and uh, at that point, I was I was hooked, uh, and so started uh, to read everything that I could get a hold of in the library, and, and uh, you know, really... Uh, connected uh, with this this piece of American history and from there I, I got involved eventually in civil war reenacting and as well as you know serious study uh, of the war now you mentioned reenacting and in your acknowledgement at the beginning of the book you talk about uh, the the value of, from a historian's point of view of doing reenacting of, of experiencing some of the the visceral uh, senses, sensory experiences of, of soldiering. Did when I read that I thought, well, yes and no. I mean you don't you don't get shot at, you don't get contract dysentery, I hope. Um but obviously the you, you find there is value in it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, uh, recreation, no matter what time period you're doing, whether it's a peacetime activity or a wartime activity, mm-hmm. is is not the real thing. Uh, and, until we invent time machines, I suppose, that, that that's an impossibility. Uh, but when you're looking at military history, and I reenact everything from the War of 1812 through the Vietnam War, uh, it's, it's part of what we do uh, at the Texas Military Forces Museum, in Austin, where I'm the director, it's the official museum of the Texas National Guard, we put on lots of living history programs. Uh, and if you wanted to read a book about somebody uh, who was going to tell you how to fly an airplane, you would prefer to read a book written by a pilot rather than somebody who's maybe just done a lot of studying and reading about flying an airplane, that there would be an extra element of understanding uh, as you say, a visceral, emotional kind of connection uh, to the subject that is not just purely intellectual. Uh, and when you start talking about the the Civil War, uh, then you have you know all kinds of tactics and that sort of stuff uh, that are part of the ability to understand military operations. Uh, and you can't read the official records uh, without people referencing the maneuvers they did on the battlefield. 
and if you don't know what it means to go on the right by following the line, if you don't know the difference between a column of regiments and a, a column of companies and a brigade massed uh, in close order, then you can't really understand what those officers are talking about. And uh, I was going to comment on that. You have some diagrams of, of just those sorts of things and showing what a, a brigade column of regiments massed looks like compared to uh, you know, taking company distance or, or the, the other maneuvers they could do. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, it, it, it does help make clear what you're talking about. And it surprises me that more authors don't do that because, as you say, we read that the terminology of, of Civil War soldiers, and, and we don't necessarily understand it unless, uh, you know, some people will maneuver a formation of toy soldiers on a table and and help them understand what it means to, you know, wheel into column, uh, doing it that way, and others do it one-to-one, life-size scale out on a field. And But you need some way to learn that stuff. Uh, you, you yeah, you need some way it. to learn it. And, you know, there there are manuals that you can read and and Hess has has written a whole book about Civil War tactics but it's a completely different thing to actually experience it to learn Mm -hmm. it as an officer to give the orders and to you know be advancing over a field with you know hundreds or thousands of troops and having to figure out in the face of the terrain and the, the tactical circumstances how am I going to put these men into line of battle from a column of march? If we have to suddenly uh, face an enemy who's on our flank that we didn't know was there, how are you going to do that? How long is it going to take? How much confusion might be engendered uh, by giving the wrong order? Uh, what happens as you try to maneuver and you, you're attacked? Uh, and what happens when you don't have well-trained troops? What happens when you don't have competent commanders who know what order to give and how to articulate the proper order? I mean, that's the nuts and bolts of what goes on on a Civil War battlefield. And it's as complex uh, in, in a reenactment field as it is on an actual battlefield. Well, we're going to take a short break and come back and find out what happens on the battlefields or the campaign stage after Gettysburg. When we talk more with our guest, Jeffrey William Hunt, author of Meade and Lee After Gettysburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Jeffrey William Hunt, author of Meade and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg Campaign. From Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14 to 31, 1863. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned your uh, museum director in your day job, but could you say a little more about that? Uh, sure. Um, uh, I um, first started in museum work uh, at the Admiral Nimitz National Museum of the Pacific War, which is in Fredericksburg, Texas. Uh, and uh, I was the curator of collections out there and the director of the Living History Program for uh, 10 years. Uh, and then I came over to Camp Mabry in Austin, Texas, which is the headquarters of the Texas uh, National Guard and the 36th Infantry Division. Uh, and uh, since October of 2007, I've been the director of the museum there. So you're in, heavily involved in public history and all the, uh, the, the joys and challenges that that brings. Um, uh, budgeting uh, for one, but uh, uh, but tonight we're talking about the Civil War, so we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, the I, I want to talk about this campaign in some detail. I found this a re- very interesting book uh, uh, to read, but the key word in the title to me is forgotten. The forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, this takes place, uh, the, the actions you described take place uh, 10 days after the Battle of Gettysburg and stretch on for another two and a half weeks. Why is this forgotten? Well, you know, anybody who's written a history of the Battle of Gettysburg or the, or the Gettysburg, Gettysburg campaign has waded through a lot of very fascinating, very compelling, and very complex material. I mean, you, you go look at you know the library shelves, uh, and and you see how thick all the books on Gettysburg are. Uh, it's not a story that you can tell in a detailed fashion, in a very short way. Uh, and I think as a result of that, uh, historians have tended to follow the campaign until Lee's army escapes across the Potomac, uh, and 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 at that point, 
they're happy to call it quits. <laughs> they're, they're, they're exhausted. Their readers are exhausted. Uh, the campaign seems to have reached, you know, some, uh, some critical point. Uh, the, and it's, it's, um, it's a very compelling end. Oh, the, the Confederates escaped and Lincoln's mad at Meade and, and the mm-hmm. great opportunity to perhaps end the war in 1863 has been lost. And it's not nearly so uh, exciting to say, well, you know, nobody threw a switch and turned everything off uh, on July 13, 14 after Lee crossed the Potomac. The armies are still in the field. Uh, they're still fighting to be done. Uh, there's still political expectations and, and military uh, necessity uh, that are compelling the armies forward. Uh, and those final two weeks also don't produce a great big bloodbath. And military historians tend to follow the big bloodbaths. Uh, you know, it's, it's just that's where, you know, a lot of drama is. That's where reputations are made or wrecked. And uh, even though a lot of battles don't really produce any true strategic or decisive result, uh, those are the kinds of things that get attention. We make national parks out of some battlefields. Uh, and so it's just really easy to stop the Gettysburg Campaign at the Potomac. Uh, and the, the Confederates are no longer invading the North. They're now back in Virginia. Uh, and so we're just going to shut down our story right there. Well, but as you say, the, the, the people at the time didn't see it that way. There's, uh, uh, and Gary Gallagher has an essay about how the Confederate Army and the Confederate people didn't think Gettysburg was all that bad. Uh, all that big a deal. When it was over, it's just another battle. They didn't see it as, oh, turning point, war is all different now. Uh, and they certainly didn't cross the Potomac and say, well, like you say, throw the switch, we're done. Uh, last summer, I read A.A. A. Humphrey's account, uh, Gettysburg to the Rapidan, just because I picked it up in a bookstore somewhere, uh, which covers this part of the war. And I was fascinated to realize how I knew nothing uh, about this this time between the end of the uh, uh, the, the campaign in Maryland, uh, when you get into Virginia, in the next you know two months, it just it, it's like a vacuum. It, it, it it's remark- remarkable. It, it, it's just it, it's like historians have just hit the fast forward button after Lee retreats across the Potomac and and they want to get to the next big battle, which is Grant taking on Lee in the wilderness which means that you're ignoring almost half a year of the Mm -hmm. war in Virginia and the operations of arguably the war's two most famous armies uh, during that period. And my my introduction, the way I came to tell the story is that, you know, when I was a young undergraduate, uh, I had the great privilege to to study uh, under brilliant professor Dr. George Forge at the University Mm -hmm. of Texas. And I was taking his class on the American Civil War Reconstruction and, and of course, had already learned a great deal about the subject. Uh, And so I was enjoying myself immensely. One of the best parts uh, of that semester was extended conversations after class with Dr. Forge. And uh, after his lecture on the Battle of Gettysburg, we were talking about, you know, why did Lee invade the North? What was he after? What was he trying to do? Uh, And, of course, the, the popular perception in the historiography at that point was, well, he's trying to win the decisive battle uh, that will end the war. Uh, and, 
you know, since he didn't win that, then that's the turning point of the war, and the South is forever doomed, and it's just a question of time. And Dr. Forge posed the question, uh, how could we prove that Gettysburg was as important as everybody makes it out to be? And he questioned whether it was. And that mm. really intrigued me. Uh, and so I thought, well, if Gettysburg is, is a turning point, however you want to define turning point, uh, mm-hmm. then the war before Gettysburg should look very different than the war after Gettysburg. And it seemed to me that the, the place to start looking for that difference is in the immediate aftermath of the battle. And when I went to look for that story in uh, the secondary history, it wasn't there. Nobody had ever written about that period. There was just this giant void between Lee crossing the Potomac and Grant's arrival in the Eastern Theater. Uh, and so I had to you know, back up into original source material. And if you pull the Gettysburg volume and the official records, the mm-hmm. first thing that you notice is that doesn't end until the beginning of August of 1863. So even so, at the time... Those two mm-hmm. weeks are considered to be part of the Gettysburg campaign by the men who actually lived through it and fought it. Now, one argument uh, one might make is, uh, well, the reason people don't write about this is, as, as you said, there's no great battle. Uh, there's really th- nothing to see here. Uh, the Confederates move across the Potomac. After a few days, Meade follows them. Then Lee retreats back to central Virginia. And after a while, Meade follows them. End of story. Uh, is that all that could have happened, or is that all that happened, or all that could have happened? Well, no, it's not all that happened, and it's not all that could have happened because you know when Lee escapes across the Potomac, obviously the Lincoln administration, General in Chief Halleck, are, are furious, and Halleck mm-hmm. orders me to follow Lee wherever he's gone and cut his army up. Uh, and so Meade knows that he's got to cross the Potomac, even though he doesn't want to. Meade thinks mm-hmm. that Lincoln ought to be happy just to get the Confederates back into Virginia, uh, and that the Army of the Potomac, which has been as mauled at Gettysburg as the Army of Northern Virginia has been mauled, that that army ought to have a chance to rest, reorganize, be reinforced before it tries anything uh, else. But he knows, Meade knows that that's not acceptable. And so he crosses the river. Other Union forces are crossing the river. And so it's sort of a seamless thing here. And for the Federals, there was a possibility. Uh, If they moved swiftly, if they had some luck, uh, to trap Lee's army in the lower Shenandoah Valley uh, and basically then get the opportunity to do on the south bank of the Potomac River what they'd failed to do on the north bank of the Potomac River, and that is destroy or substantially destroy uh, the Confederate Army uh, and take the North a long way toward winning the war. Failing that, if you could force Lee to make a big detour in his retreat out of the Shenandoah Valley, the Federals might be able to leap the Rapidan and the Rappahannock Rivers. Uh, And so when Grant starts his campaign, it might be taking place on the North Anna River, instead of on the Rapidan. And uh, we can imagine that the war might have been very different uh, because of that. For the Confederates, they've got to get themselves through the Blue Ridge Mountains back into central Virginia around Culpeper Courthouse so that they're once again in a blocking position 
uh, between Washington and Richmond. And there's no guarantee that the Confederates are going to do that. Uh, and so there's the possibility still for a great big battle, perhaps what could be the decisive battle, not only of the campaign, but perhaps the war. And it was Meade's job to try and seek out that battle and Lee's job at this juncture to avoid that battle and put his army back in a, in a strong strategic blocking position to defend Richmond. So, uh, listeners, this is a good time to put us on pause, get your maps out, make sure you're following along. Uh, if you have a copy of the book, there are excellent maps in the book. Uh, but Lee is in the Shenandoah Valley. He's well uh, west of... Washington and Richmond, and then there are the Blue Ridge Mountains, and Meade is on the eastern side of the Blue Ridge. So Right, in the Loudoun Valley, whose western border is the Blue Ridge and the Shenandoah River, and whose mm-hmm. eastern border is the Bull Run Mountains. So if, if, he can, if Meade can block the, the passes of the Blue Ridge Mountain, the gaps that Lee would normally go through to get back to central Virginia, if he could block those up, then he's got Lee trapped in the valley. Uh, right. So if he can get through some of those passes south of Lee, and Lee mm-hmm. remains in the lower valley around Winchester and, and Martinsburg, uh, then he could get between the Confederates and their base of supply, uh, the Virginia Central Railroad, Stanton, uh, Richmond, and that would isolate Lee's army from reinforcements resupply, uh, and put it in an incredibly vulnerable situation, arguably uh, as vulnerable as when it had its back to the flooded Potomac around Williamsport and Falling Waters. So this is, so, so Lee is in, it said the lower valley, which for those not from Virginia means the, the northern half of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Uh, right. And if, if Meade can get south of him and, and cross those gaps into the valley and, and keep Lee from using them. Uh, this is, uh, as one of your chapter titles puts it, this is the great chessboard of central Virginia. This is a real uh, maneuvering match between two generals. Now, looking at it, just looking at the maps and hearing you explain this, the thought is, well, me, that's what you have to do. Just go get through the Manassas Gap first, uh, cut Lee off, and, and you win, or you put him in a very bad position. You, you Maybe you don't checkmate him, but you check him, certainly. Why doesn't Meade promptly and decisively move through the gaps? Well, a couple of really interesting things here is that, of course, the Shenandoah River is flooded, just like the Potomac River is flooded. And you have this enormous mountain range, as well as that flooded river, that's dividing the two armies. And so they don't really know with certainty where their opponent is. Getting intelligence is really hard to do. The cavalry of both sides can't do very much uh, to scout out the enemy. And so Meade moves into the Loudoun Valley. That puts him on the strategic flank of Lee's army. And Lee uh, had, had lingered in the lower valley to see if Meade would cross the Potomac. And remember McClellan, after the Battle of Sharpsburg, had waited a month to cross mm-hmm. the river. Uh, and so Lee didn't want to give up any more territory than necessary. He really hoped that he could stay close to the Potomac and keep the Union Army pinned near Washington. So Lee's incentive to stay in the Lower Valley makes a lot of sense. Meade 
doesn't know where Lee is with certainty, and he doesn't know what Lee's going to do. And the Federal Army certainly does not have the impression that the Army of Northern Virginia has been wrecked by the Battle of Gettysburg, that it's been demoralized by the Battle of Gettysburg. It's very, uh, very efficient uh, retreat across the Potomac River. Uh, kind of indicated that, that the rebels were a long way from being beaten, and Meade knew that as soon as he crossed the river into Virginia, he was on enemy territory again, and that he had to be careful of making a misstep because Lee would take advantage of that to resume the offensive. Uh, and when the Federals began to seize the first couple of gaps in, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, so they get Ashby's Gap and they get Snick. Snickers Gap, and they can get some observers up there on those mountain peaks, and with telescopes they can look very far into the Shenandoah Valley, and they can see the Confederates are still camped around Winchester and points north. And that doesn't make any sense to George Meade, because if he was in Lee's shoes, he would want to get south back into central Virginia absolutely as quickly as possible. And so Meade's wondering why Lee is lingering in the lower valley, which seems to be kind of a dangerous place. If me can continue to push south, uh, then, you know, potentially there's the, the possibility of him getting into the valley and cutting Lee off. And while Meade is pondering this, he has a southern newspaper land on his desk that says that Lee is being massively reinforced from Confederate uh. troops in the Carolinas and even Tennessee. And at that point, George Meade who believes that this is certainly a reasonable response to the Battle of Gettysburg by the Confederates, George Meade becomes concerned that if Lee is being reinforced, he's going to resume the offensive. And so if Meade continues to push south down the Loudoun Valley, and a reinforced Lee then crosses the Blue Ridge north of Meade, it's Meade's army that gets cut off from Washington instead of Lee's army that gets cut off from Richmond. So it's really uh, the, a, a bluff, a, a chess game, a poker game as well as chess. There's bluff involved. We're going to take another short break and come back in a moment to talk further with our guest tonight, Jeffrey William Hunt, author of Meade and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign. We'll be back and do that in a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Jeffrey William Hunt, author of Meade and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg Campaign. From Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14 to 31, 1863. We've been talking about how the Union Army of the Potomac crossed the Potomac River in pursuit of Lee and ended up on the east side of the Blue Ridge Mountains with Lee on the west side inside the Shenandoah Valley and the two armies separated by ridges and river, the Shenandoah River, uh, jousting, sparring with one another, trying to figure out where the other one was, who's going where. Lee is making his way by uh, the the 20th, 21st or so, making his way south, uh, back toward the Rapidan, the Rappahannock River complex where he can be safe. Uh, And and Jeff, I ask you why Meade didn't immediately uh, rush through the passes, try to attack, and you point out that Meade is not sure that Lee hasn't just received massive reinforcements, isn't getting ready to attack him. What finally gets Meade disabused of that notion, or at least inspires him enough to to start moving forward? Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, because Meade's idea isn't isn't as foolish as it sort of sounds like in in hindsight, Mm -hmm. because there was a small federal force of about 6,000 troops under General Benjamin F. Kelly from the Department Mm -hmm. of Western Virginia, that had crossed the Potomac into the western fringe of the Shenandoah Valley. And he had been probing against the Confederates around Martinsburg. Uh, and eventually the Confederate Second Corps under General Ewell had lashed out uh, and tried to catch and destroy uh, General Kelly's force. And to me, that seemed to confirm that the Confederates had offensive intentions. And he wasn't mm-hmm. going to walk into a trap. So he stopped the movement of his infantry 
for about 35 hours until he could gain further knowledge of the, the situation. But he sent Buford's Cavalry Division to try and capture Manassas and Chester's Gap, which opened into the Shenandoah Valley at Front Royal and would be the most efficient route for the Confederates to use to get back into Culpeper County. Uh, and so Meade isn't just sort of sitting on his hands. And remember, the weather is incredibly hot. Uh, the marching is very hard for the infantry, and it's torturous for the artillery. Uh, and so, you know, the conditions are, are pretty rugged. Uh, but the Federals are trying to do something, trying to figure out where the Confederates are. Uh, and as a consequence of that, on July 21st of 63, uh, Wesley Merritt's Cavalry Brigade gets into Manassas Gap, and William Gamble's Cavalry Brigade uh, gets into Chester's Gap. Uh, but the Confederates, who've already started to shift toward Culpeper on July 20th, managed to get elements of General Corse's brigade of Pickett's division, one of his two brigades that had been left in Virginia during the Gettysburg campaign. They managed to get elements uh, of that brigade into both of those gaps, and they stymied the Federal cavalry uh, from pushing through the gaps to Front Royal, uh, there's a hard day's fight uh, by the 17th Virginia in Manassas Gap to keep Merritt at bay. Uh, but the advance that far in encountering Confederate infantry in the passes uh, is a big piece of the puzzle for me as to what Lee's doing. If there's Confederate infantry in those passes, Lee's probably beginning to shift. And now the Federals have more observers on the mountains further south, and they can see Longstreet's Corps moving toward the mountains. And at that point, Meade realizes that Lee has begun the shift. Uh, and so he puts his infantry back in motion to try and go and support the Federal cavalry in the two critical mountain passes. The uh, Third Corps, the one that Dan Sickles led to uh, disaster at Gettysburg, is the one that that Meade sends into Manassas Gap, and this is the closest to a, a battle in the, the chunk of campaign that you describe here. Uh, if, if the Third Corps had broken through the Manassas Gap, would that have compromised Lee's army? Well, it's interesting because of uh, General Ewell's uh, thrust toward Kelly uh, around Hedgesville in the northwestern mm -hmm. corner of the Shenandoah Valley, uh, and then its subsequent movement back toward Winchester, the Federals have gotten really confused about where the various elements of Lee's army are located. And so mm -hmm. Lee had sent both Longstreet and A.P. Hill's Corps to Front Royal with orders to go through Chester's Gap, which is south of Manassas Gap, and go to Culpeper Courthouse. And Ewell's Corps is going to follow but Ewell's Corps has been split by this movement against Kelly so that General Early's division is far north of Rhodes and Johnson's division. So there are basically four Confederate pieces on the chessboard. And the Federals get the idea that only Longstreet's Corps is trying to get through Chester's Gap. And, and in fact, it expels Gamble from the mouth of Chester's Gap so it can make that movement. They think that Hill's Corps is part of Longstreet's Corps and that Early's division is, in fact, all of Hill's Corps and the two divisions of Rhodes and Johnson are all of Ewell's Corps. And so Meade gets the idea that there are still two Confederate Corps in the Shenandoah Valley 
they might be able to get at. In fact, there's only one. Uh, and if the Federals had managed to push vigorously through Manassas Gap, they might have been able to cut off Ewell's Corps and throw the bulk of the Army of the Potomac against it. Uh, not the victory that Meade was seeking, uh, not the one he thought was within his grasp, uh, but one that would have seriously wounded the Army of Northern Virginia without question. Now, the, the fight at Manassas Camp is where you use some of these diagrams that show tactical maneuvers, what a brigade, where the regiments of a brigade are in relation to one another and so on. Uh, and I, I enjoy that. This was a book that, that grew on me during the reading, as as you describe these fights uh, in, in detail, but not uh, not excruciating detail. Uh, listeners, don't be don't be terrified. Uh, for example, the, the charge of the Excelsior Brigade at Manassas Gap is uh, uh, it seemed to me a really remarkable uh, tactical moment. Could, could you talk about that? Sure. So on July 23rd of 1863, the 3rd Corps is advanced to the town of Linden, which is at the the apex of Manassas Gap, and the Federal 5th Corps is coming in behind it. And at that juncture, the only thing that stands in their path is 600 Georgians from Wright's Brigade, uh, and they're facing two Federal Corps. And so they call on Ewell for reinforcements, and Ewell is hurrying Rhodes and Johnson's division to their assistance, but it's going to take six or seven hours for them to get there. So these Georgians have to make a fight of it. Uh, And fortunately, the new commander of the Third Corps, William French, who had taken over from the wounded Sickles, is a cautious commander. He's, he's leading a corps for the first time, so he's perhaps a little uncertain. And as a division commander, he always got really rotten jobs. He attacked Marie's Heights and the Stonewall at Fredericksburg. He attacked the Sunken Road at Sharpsburg. So the man has learned some caution. And so he maneuvers very tentatively against the Georgians. He uses a, you know, uh, a division... Uh, to basically drive them off one mountain, force them back 600 yards to a second hill, uh, which is called uh, Wapping Heights, and then to, to knock them off, he sends the Excelsior Brigade from New York uh, and orders them to break the Confederate line. And this is uh, the high point uh, of this, this phase of the campaign for the Federals because the Excelsior Brigade has to attack uh, up a a hill 300 feet basically almost perpendicular to get at the Confederates who are on the top. Uh, and it's a, it's a really gutsy performance by the troops on both sides. Uh, the Federals outnumber the Confederates at that point, and the Confederates have been fighting most of the day, and the Excelsior Brigade is fresh, so they manage to break through. Uh, but one of the interesting things about it is that the men of the 5th Corps and the rest of the 3rd Corps are behind the Excelsior Brigade on higher ground so they can see the fight. And Rhodes and Johnson's division show up. Uh, the, the Wright's Brigade's won the necessary time. They show up, and they're on higher ground uh, overlooking the battlefield. And so it's almost like that fight happens in a stadium. Uh, and Union and Federal troops, uh, I'm sorry, Union and Confederate troops watch this thing from a safe vantage point or actually cheering their comrades during the course of the battle, almost as though it was a football game. Wow. Now, the, uh, the, the attack 
succeeds to a degree, but uh, as we know, this is not the decisive battle of the war. This does not destroy the Army of Northern Virginia, and Lee is eventually able to get his his troops out. Since we have just a few minutes left, I don't want to fail to ask this question. You used at the very start of our conversation the word trilogy, uh, which tells me this is not all we're going to learn about uh, Meade and Lee after Gettysburg. Uh, tell us about your, the, the big project this belongs to. Well, so, you know, the whole idea was to find out the impact of Gettysburg on the war by examining what happens immediately after Gettysburg. And mm-hmm. so uh, I am looking at that entire period from July 14th of 63 through December 31st of 1863. I'm looking at this six-month period when Meade was in sole command of the Army of the Potomac and the operations that go on uh, between the two. And this is not a quiet period. There's a lot of maneuver. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of pers- per- um, a lot of possibility. And in addition. Uh, these actions set the stage tactically and strategically for Grant's overland campaign. So they have an enormous impact on the war. Uh, The second volume in the trilogy, Meade and Lee at Bristow Station, will cover Mm -hmm. August, September, and October of 1863, and it should be out within the next uh, eight weeks or so. Okay. And uh, did you initially write this as, as one big project, or uh, how did this come to be the trilogy form? Yeah, well, initially I was just really looking at August, September, October, November, and December, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and wrote one great 900-page book. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, the editor was very excited uh, about that, uh, but obviously he said, and, and quite correctly, that that was uh, too big. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we were going to break it into two, uh, but even two, um, you know, seemed a little weighty. So we thought, well, let's break it into three, and we'll do uh, August and September, and then we'll do one that is October, uh, and then we will do one that is November and December, the Mine Run campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, August and September by themselves, maybe the, not enough there. Let, let's let's back up a little bit and do these these two weeks uh, after Lee crosses the Potomac. And when I wrote that, we looked at it and said, well, that's a good story unto itself, and so mm-hmm. we'll just make that a book. <laughs> and well, so, I, I, uh, the, the way that it played itself out was kind of interesting. But I think a, a really, really good approach for a very, very interesting period that has been uh, wrongfully ignored uh, by historians. And it's a dramatic period. Uh, and the fighting, the maneuvering, the, 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 the generalship, all of that is as meaningful as anything that happens in any of the more famous campaigns of the war. Well, it certainly is is interesting. Uh, I, I think your editor was, gave good advice. This is a nice bite-sized chunk, 270 pages or so, uh, that tells a story that most of us, me certainly, uh, did not know well or know at all. Uh, and that has uh, very interesting potential to have been much more than it was and is interesting in its own right. So, uh, listeners, you should get yourself a copy of Mead and Lee after Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign from Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14 to 31, 1863. And if you like that, you can get the rest of the books when they come out. They are all by uh, our guest tonight, Jeffrey William Hunt. Jeff, thank you for being on the show. 
It's been a real pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.